0: like to ask you an important question. What do you think Jesus is like? For example, what kind of personality do you think he has? How do you think he likes to express himself in public and in conversations? And to help us answer those questions, let's imagine a scene. Let's pretend it's a typical Sunday morning at Garden Way. It's right before the service, we're standing there in the lobby, we're greeting our friends and engaging in conversation, and all of a sudden, Jesus walks in. Jesus is here in our midst. What do you think he'd be like? Do you think he would be low-key, circulating quietly through the lobby and softly introducing himself to people? Or would he be one of those loud and gregarious people, slapping people on the back, shaking hands and grabbing attention? Or would he maybe just walk off to the side and find a seat and silently watch as other people interact? If Jesus were to engage you in conversation, what would he talk about? Would it be personal? Would he discuss popular culture and current events? Or would he get all theological? What do you think Jesus is like? It's a fascinating question, and it leads to an equally fascinating follow-up question. Would every Christian answer that question the same way? The North England Institute for Christian Education wanted to find out, so they developed a self-survey To help discern what believers actually think about Jesus. And this is a survey with three parts. Part one, when you sit down to fill this out, asks a number of questions to determine what you think Jesus is like. And so you respond to questions like these Would Jesus usually be reserved in public, or would he prefer to be the center of attention? Would Jesus prefer to follow the rules? Or would he go his own way? That's part one. Then part two asks you some biographical questions. Your name, your age, your church affiliation and more. And it's a little bit sneaky because the real purpose of part two is to to help you forget the answers you gave in part one. Because when you get to part three, it's all about you. Asking what you are like. And the questions in part three... Are identical to the questions in part one, only they're now about you instead of Jesus. This survey has been taken by multiple believers who live in different nations over many years, and most people give mostly the same answers to the questions in part one and part three. And so if I'm reserved in public, that's how I think Jesus will act. If I'm outgoing, I think Jesus will be outgoing too. The person who is a rule follower and the person who is a rule breaker each think that the behavior of Jesus matches their own. You see, we all have this tendency to think that Jesus is just like us. Now, on one level, it's kind of funny, on another level, it's kind of sad. In reality, though, it's a huge problem. You see, if I think Jesus is like me and you think Jesus is like you, then ultimately we wind up putting our desires on him. After all, if he's like me, then he should want what I want and he should give me what I want. Yet Jesus is not just like me and he's not just like you. And he didn't come to indulge our wants. Jesus came as our king to invite us to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. That is a foundational truth of our faith, yet, it's one we often fail to grasp. And we're not the only ones to miss the boat. The people in first-century Israel, those people who had the privilege of seeing Jesus personally, they had the same struggle as we do. They got to hear Jesus teach live and in person. They watched him perform miracles. And yet they didn't get it right either. Now, they understood enough to know that Jesus was coming as a king But they didn't realize what kind of king Jesus intended to be. They did what we often do. They put their own desires onto Jesus. And they did this with one big desire in particular. They wanted Jesus to get rid of the hated Roman overseers. They wanted Jesus to restore independence to Israel. And they wanted him to be the king of their nation. This heartfelt desire of many Jewish people shows up in a number of places in the Bible, but but it's most vividly clear as Jesus begins the last week of his life. In the passage we're going to explore this morning, Jesus enters Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week, and he does so to great acclaim. People are cheering him, they're honoring him, but it's all misguided because the people do not understand who Jesus actually is. Now, this story we're going to explore is recorded in all four biographies of Jesus in the Bible. And each historian provides a distinct glimpse of the events which took place on that very, very important day. So this morning, we're going to look at some highlights from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in a few cases, to give us the most complete picture, I blended together the different accounts to to make the story a bit more seamless. And so we're going to begin by taking a look at how Jesus enters Jerusalem. And then we're going to see how the Jewish people try to make Jesus the king of their desires. Let's take a look. As they approached Jerusalem, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. See, your king comes to you, gentlemen riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Those who were sent ahead found it just as he had told them. So as Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem, this story begins with two predictions. One of those is a fresh prediction, one is an ancient prediction. The fresh prediction is given by Jesus. He tells two disciples to go into town to get this young donkey. And he predicts exactly what will happen and he predicts the dialogue that will take place. Everything comes true exactly as stated. Once again, revealing that Jesus is in control of events. Jesus knows the future. And when he wants, he can control the future. Who else could do that but God? The second prediction, the ancient prediction, comes from the book of Zechariah. Riding under the guidance of the Holy Spirit hundreds of years before Jesus, Zechariah predicts that the Jewish Messiah will come to the people riding on a donkey, just as we see recorded here in this passage. Now, the Jewish people are very familiar with Zechariah's prophecy, and they were taught that when this happens, it will be a very clear sign that their Messiah, their King, has come. And so, in just a moment, the people will see Jesus enter Jerusalem on a donkey. He will be coming into the start of Passover week, which is the holiest time of the year in Israel, and they will believe that that Zechariah's prediction is coming true. Jesus is coming to be their king. Unfortunately, they have the wrong kind of king in mind, because their desires are not in line with God's desires. And we see that with what happens next. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it for him to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is the king of Israel. Some of these people surrender their garments. They take some of those garments, they lay them over the back of the donkey to... Make some padding, kind of a saddle for Jesus to ride on. Some lay their their cloaks down in the road to keep down the dust. Other people lay down branches. And then some people even gather palm branches. They have those branches because they want to wave them as Jesus passes by. It's a form of royal greeting. It's what you do to honor a king. But what kind of king? The king of what kingdom? We never can forget that when Jesus began his ministry, he did so with these words. The time has come and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe this good news. Jesus' ministry is all about inviting people into his kingdom. But as we can see, these people are not focused on the kingdom of God. They're proclaiming Jesus as their earthly And Because their desires are not aligned with the desires of God, they take what should be an incredibly spiritual moment, the arrival of the Messiah, and they turn it into a political rally. They shout Hosanna, which means save, but they're not talking about spiritual salvation. They want Jesus to save them from the Romans. Passover is this annual reminder that God miraculously freed the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt and allowed them to establish their own independent nation. And oh, they want him to do it again. Right now. To free them from Rome. That's why they bless Jesus the way they do. They bless him as the king of Israel. They want him to bring back the glory years, those years they enjoyed when King David ruled the nation. Their view of the future is nostalgically bound by the past. I wonder if sometimes that is true for some of us. Now, at the core, their, their great desire is for Israel to be free and independent. And that's an understandable desire because who doesn't want to be free? And yet this desire is not aligned with the desire of Jesus. The Jewish people cheering for Jesus assumed he was like them and therefore he must want what they want. And they get it wrong. And this is a hard truth for all of us to grasp. And the fact is, we can desire something deeply and passionately. It may be something even that is very good, yet it may not be what God desires. We can want something that God has no intention of giving us. And the way to avoid being profoundly disappointed in God is to make every effort to understand what He wants. Rather than put our desires on him, we let his desires shape our desires. As a way to understand this, let's think for a moment about the relationship between parents and children. I remember when I was about 10 years old, I wanted my first real grown up bicycle. Not a toy, not something with training wheels, but a real bicycle, a durable, reliable bike that I could ride all over town. I viewed that bicycle as my pathway to independence and freedom. And I pitched this idea to my folks by appealing to their self-interest. I said, Mom, if I get a really good, adult, reliable bike, then I'll be able to ride all over town and you won't have to drive me places anymore. I told my dad, hey, with a good, reliable bike, I can get a paper out. I can earn money, and you won't have to give me any allowance anymore. I thought those were great arguments. But they didn't fly. And they didn't fly because my parents wanted more for me than simply to have a new bike. So they issued a challenge. They said, get some jobs around the neighborhood. Go mow some lawns, go pull some weeds, go run some errands, do some chores, and save up the cost of the bike. And if you save half the cost, we'll match it. You see, they wanted me to learn the value of hard work, they wanted me to learn the value of delayed gratification. They wanted me to have some sweat equity in that new bike believing that I'd take better care of it. And they were right on all counts. And I eventually got my new bike, but I learned some great lessons along the way. But it began because my desires did not perfectly align with the desires of my parents. In order to accomplish what I wanted, I had to let their desires shape my desires. That is so often true for parents and children. And it's so often true for God and His children. And in this case that we're reading about here in the Bible, it is so very clear what Jesus wants. He is not coming to be the king who fulfills the desires of the Jewish people. And this becomes so clear when we see what happens next. If Jesus was coming to foment a rebellion, then he'd probably go into some town square and he would rally the troops. He would incite them with an impassioned speech. He might go down to the palace and confront the authorities. And he doesn't do any of those things. You know what Jesus does after this entry? After being heralded as a king? Jesus weeps. He weeps for the people. Look at how Luke describes this. One before that. As he approached Jerusalem, nope, there we go. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. Look at this. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Jesus weeps for the people because they have mistaken His identity. He weeps because they have missed the most foundational point of His teaching and ministry, that He's coming as the King to usher in the Kingdom of God. And He's weeping and His heart is broken because His desire for them goes so much more beyond the restoration of their nation. The kingdom of God can and the kingdom of God will surpass what any human nation has to offer. And the kingdom of God can grow and flourish in any nation and under any system of government. And yes, we all have a great desire to be free, but the fact is that even under tyrants and even in the face of oppression, the church of Jesus Christ can thrive and people can be drawn into the kingdom of God. We see this later on, after the day of Pentecost, when believers are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the kingdom of God spreads like wildfire across cities and nations, changing lives, changing hearts, changing culture. And they do it even under the domination of the Roman Empire. Jesus comes not to restore a nation but to redeem and restore the world. That is the pathway to peace. And the Jewish people fail to grasp this, and it makes Jesus weep. I sometimes wonder if he's weeping over us, passionately, fervently, wishing that we would grasp who he really is. and What we see here on this fateful day is that King Jesus comes in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. He comes to be the ambassador for the kingdom of God. He's the king coming, bringing a message of hope and peace. And God's people miss it because they do not recognize that Jesus is God. And because they fail to recognize this, they pursue what they want rather than what God wants. And as a result, they will pay a price. They're not going to experience peace. In fact, for the Jewish people, things are going to go from bad to worse. Not only will they not see their desires for a new kingdom of Israel be fulfilled, they will lose even what they have. Jesus' comments here about destruction refer to the year 70 A.D. when Jerusalem will be sacked and the temple will be destroyed. At that time, the Jewish people will lose the very center of their religious life. It's another prophecy that sadly will come true. There's always a price to pay when we fail to recognize God in our midst. Thankfully, though, our God is the God of the second chance. And For those who are paying attention, there always is a second chance. There's always another opportunity to get it. And as the Apostle John wraps up the, the events of this historic day, he reminds us that our God is the God of the second chance. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about Him and that these things had been done to Him. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it rather amazing to realize that Jesus' closest friends, at first, didn't understand any better than the crowds in Jerusalem. They had spent so much time with Jesus, they would traveled with Him on the road for three years. They had all kinds of tangible evidence that Jesus was God in human form, yet it simply was too fantastic for them to believe. Everything changed when Jesus was glorified. That's John's term for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And when those events happened, then the disciples were able to connect the dots. Then they realized that Jesus was their king. They were able to realize it because Jesus was glorified. That's why the final weekend of Jesus' life is so foundational to our faith. Jesus' followers had to see Him die. They had to know beyond any doubt that He was dead, that He was buried, that He was sealed in a tomb. They had to know that all hope was gone because only then Could the resurrection make such a huge impact on them? Only then would the resurrection amaze them. And on that day when Jesus rose from the grave, they realized that he had redefined reality by conquering death. On Easter Sunday, that's when the followers of Jesus finally realized that God, that God himself had been among them. And with that realization, then they were ready to change the world. They were ready to align their desires with God's desires. And that's why we make such a big deal out of Good Friday every year. Remembering the day when Jesus was crucified. That's why we make such a big deal out of Easter Sunday every year. Remembering the day when Jesus returned to life. Without those two events... Christianity is just about following the principles of a dead Jewish rabbi. And with those two events, Christianity is about following Jesus, the King of the Kingdom of God. So I hope you plan to be here this coming weekend. I hope you'll be here Friday night as we reflect on the meaning of Good Friday. We're going to do something a bit different this year instead of a typical worship service we're going to have a family friendly participatory worship experience and we're going to do this drop in style. You can come to the church anytime Friday night between 6.30 and 8 o'clock p.m. And we're going to have the auditorium set up with about four different stations and each station will have a theme. And there'll be a handout with some scriptures you can read and some questions for you to ponder over and reflect on and pray over. And you'll work your way around the auditorium and you'll wind up down here at the center and we'll have the communion table set up. And you can conclude your time by taking communion and remembering the price that Jesus paid to be our King. And you can come alone. You can come with a friend and go through this together. You can come with your family. We hope that you'll be here. And make Good Friday a special experience that strengthens your faith, that reminds you of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And then, of course, we'd love to see you here on Easter Sunday as we celebrate what it means for human beings to have an encounter with the risen Jesus. We want to see in a fresh way what it means for us to personally know our God and our Creator. And we want to sing and pray, spend time in the Scriptures so that we can honor Jesus, not as the King of our desires, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the King of God's kingdom. And I want to remind you about this. We live in a culture that is increasingly unchurched, a culture where people are increasingly distant from the things of God. Yet there are two times a year when even people who would never darken the door of a church are often open to being invited. And those two holidays are Christmas and Easter. And so I want to challenge you to begin praying about who you might invite to join you next Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. On your way out today, you'll see by the door, we have some little round invitations that our associate minister, Rob Carney, has made up. I want to encourage you to take one of those and I want you to give it to a friend a family member, a neighbor or coworker somebody who may be far from God. Invite them to come so they can learn about the resurrected Christ, the King, of the kingdom of God. I want to now circle back to the question that I posed at the beginning. What do you think Jesus is like? We've seen here in this Bible story that the Jewish people projected their own desires onto Jesus. They expected Him to fulfill their wishes. And that did not end well for them. I wonder, are there areas of life where you and I might actually be doing the same thing? Are we projecting our desires upon Jesus because we assume that He's like us, and therefore He must want what we want? It's a great question to ponder in virtually every area of our lives. And how we answer that question can influence the way we think about, for example, our jobs, our finances, our shopping habits, our politics. Jesus is not the king of our desires. He's the king of our kingdom of God? How might He be inviting you, how might He be inviting me to follow Him rather than to simply follow our own desires?